I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces is supported by NCARB. You have the power to influence the future of how architects are educated, trained, and licensed. Take the analysis of practice survey today. Definitely need to keep some things separate. Remember we were talking earlier about how independent living residents, it's really a choice-based decision to move there, whereas assisted living, it's a needs-based decision. So those that are making the decision based on choice, we need to make sure that they're going to live in an environment they want to live in. And typically that's not being reminded of their future every day, every day. This is Spaces Podcast where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. Thanks for coming back, everybody. In today's episode, we are discussing service-enriched senior housing. We'll define it in greater detail a little bit later, but in short, this is permanent, basic rental housing in which social services are available on-site or by referral through a supportive services program or service coordinator. Our guest today is Ben Seeger, Associate Principal at KTGY. He has been involved in the design, planning, and entitlement of a wide variety of of residential, mixed-use, and senior housing communities nationwide for nearly 20 years. His primary focus is the design of service-enriched senior housing, including independent living, assisted living, and memory care. As I mentioned, in this conversation, we'll define service-enriched senior housing. 
discuss design process and considerations, complexities within the typology, trends, and much more. Today you get the full team as I am joined by both Michelle and Jason as we discuss service-enriched senior housing with Ben Seeger. familiar with um service service enriched communities i don't know if i understand what that means specifically so i'm gonna have to go with no (laughs) okay michelle i think i know what that means but maybe in the context of what we're going to talk about today i'll be further enlightened okay so uh, so we'll dig into it a little bit more, but I worked on a project briefly um, that was similar. I don't know if it exactly falls into this arena, but we'll um, we'll dig into it with our guests. But I worked on a project where it was a assisted living home and it was like two single family residences and they had basically attached them and kind of makeshift converted these homes into uh for like 20 residents i think and uh so came in to to renovate it and we got through the design process and then a client ended up running out of money and COVID hit and all this other stuff so it just kind of stopped but um that was my only sort of getting my feet wet into this project type but we do have a guest on today who is actually uh, his primary focus is in design of service enriched senior housing. He is an associate principal at KTGY. Please help me welcome Ben Seeger. Ben, thank you for joining us. Hey, I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to hear that you guys don't have a ton of experience in what service enriched is, so it should be a good conversation. Yeah, yeah, we'll have tons of questions for you. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and then uh, and what your team does? Yeah, sure. So I'm an associate principal at KTGY. We're a national architecture firm with six offices across the country. We have three in California, Irvine, Los Angeles, and Oakland. We also have one in Denver, one in Chicago, and one in Tysons, Virginia, which is DC Metro. Uh, We recently brought interior design in-house, and we have a studio that sits in Chicago for interiors. And we really do all things residential. So what that means to us, it's from single-family tract homes to apartments to mixed-use to urban infill to towers. Um, And as a part of that, senior housing obviously falls into it, in addition to student housing and some other things like that. So what I do is I focus on service-enriched senior housing, which we define as independent living, assisted living, and memory care. Um, And let me get into, I guess, what each of those means, uh, because you mentioned that in the bio. So independent living is typically a resident would move into independent living as a lifestyle choice. There's not a ton of medical-type services associated with that. But what it has is it has convenience type features. So an independent living community would have a full commercial kitchen with a restaurant, multiple dining venues, most likely. It would have really robust activity spaces with heavy programmed activities. That's where I want to live right now. (laughs) Yeah, you're a little young, Demetrius. Um, I don't know, maybe the camera takes off 45, 50 years, but... Old soul. It's kind of like living on a cruise ship, right? Like permanently like just all the amenities restaurants that are that are there 
all those types of things. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Some of our bigger independent living communities have 100,000 square feet of amenity space. I mean, there's movie theaters, there's auditoriums. There's a lot going on on these things. AKA cruise ship. (laughs) Yeah, no slot machines um, (laughs) that I've seen. I haven't done any in Nevada, though. So maybe there are some in Nevada. Who knows? But yeah, it's, it's, it's a cruise ship. Trip, man. Yeah, so we interrupted <laughs> what, uh, the, the remaining types of communities. So the average age of an independent living resident is usually somewhere in the 80s. So with how healthy people are for the most part these days, 80-year-olds are still pretty independent, um, as we all know. But they're slowing down a little bit, and they don't want to take care of the yards and mow the lawn and all that kind of stuff. They'd rather live on the cruise ship. <laughs> Assisted living is where a little bit more help comes in from the staff. And someone would move to assisted living if they need help with activities of daily living. Um, And there's six of those. For instance, bathing. If you need help bathing or grooming, if you need help feeding yourself, if you need help getting dressed, toileting, things like that. If you need help with that, you would live in an assisted living community. And there's staff on site 24-7 to help with those types of things. The first few of that sounded pretty good to me. I mean, maybe the (laughs) latter half, not so much, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's tough, right? Because it's most of us, it's our future. Right. So, you know, as we design towards this, we want to have these residents in mind who, you know, they're not having the best years of their life in terms of a physical sense. So we want to make that as comfortable for them as possible when we design these environments. Memory care is the last one, which is really just a subset of assisted living. And it's those that are starting to have cognitive issues. So this is where the design is really specialized because there's a lot of research that's happened on the memory care front in terms of what types of environments can evoke memories and help the downward spiral of dementia slow a little bit. So we're very specific in the way we design memory care environments. Now, when people say, you know, 55 plus housing, does that mean something different or is that kind of all of this falls in that bucket? Yeah, it it means something different to me. Um, Some people would tell you it all falls under 55 plus, but what we're really talking about is 75 plus. Yeah. Um, 55 plus is, it's active adult, right? It's people who are getting in the car and going to work every day. It's people who are going to the golf course. These people, they're not going to work every day. They're retired. It's it's a different market. It's Jason in 12 years. Dude, for sure. I think... um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'm 40, by the way. But um, but yeah, it probably will be in 12 years, if not less. I think the active adult thing really to me is kind of like just like a country club. That's kind of how I look at it for for that that age, right? Because they have the pool and there's a lot of social activities that go on in that activity center. You know, that's my parents were in it one year at a Shea Trilogy, throw out to Shea and, and Trilogy. And that's kind of what it reminded me of. You had your golf, you had your activities, there's planned stuff, but everybody still led their life independently. It's just it was like a club. That everybody came and you know you're part of a club is how it felt. Yeah, and there's really not as much specialized design in that because designing for a 55 year old is the same as designing for a 40 year old or a 30 year old, minus a couple little unique amenities. Whereas designing for an 85 year old becomes a very different proposition. By 2030, all baby boomers will be of retirement age, 65 or older. In the U.S., that's 76.4 million people. Today's designers, builders, senior care providers, and policymakers would be wise to pay attention to and understand typologies related to aging populations. 
This concept of an aging population, especially of this magnitude, is a new phenomenon in human history. Anthropologists have found that longevity of human life only began to significantly increase, that is, past the age of 30 or so, only about 30,000 years ago. Historically, infectious diseases like cholera, tuberculosis, and smallpox limited longevity, but the damage of the bubonic plague that moved through Asia and Europe in the 14th century wiped out as much as a third of Europe's population, temporarily shifting life expectancy downward. In the mid 18th century, unhygienic living conditions, a lack of health care, risk posed by disease, injuries, and accidents continued to limit life expectancy, and infant mortality, estimated at the time as high as 30%, also dramatically influenced the overall expectancy numbers. The 1700s were particularly challenging for older adults, especially those without family members to care for them. Almshouses were places that offered food, shelter, clothing, and medical care to the poorest and most vulnerable. The Friends Almhouse, founded in 1713 by the city's Quaker leadership, was formed to help destitute members of the Society of Friends, although people of other creeds were sometimes admitted. In 1776, these challenges for older Americans and the harms of war moved the new U.S. government as one of its first acts to create federal pension programs, including pensions for disabled Revolutionary War veterans. This led the way to present day veterans' aid and assistance and veterans' housing. Another factor in the rise of senior care in the U.S. was a shift from rural living to urban living. Early on, most families were self sufficient. Homesteads and farms had everything that a family needed, even senior care was provided by the family. In 1800, 94% of the population lived in rural communities. However, up to 1900, the life expectancy of a man still only ranged from 33 years to 47 years old. Only 4% of people born in 1900 made it to age 85, and 10 to 12% to age 65. But preferences in living were rapidly changing. 1920 officially signaled the cultural shift of desired living, where the majority, 51% of the population, had moved to burgeoning urban communities. Behind improved healthcare, sanitation, immunizations, access to clean running water, better nutrition, and redistribution of people closer to cities where advanced medical care was available, people began to live longer and more productive lives. The caveat? This shift to urban areas also meant fewer people to care for aging parents and grandparents. In response to these societal changes, The 19th century saw an increased support for older adults. Nonprofit senior care homes were constructed to offer room, board, and care. Professional home health care had emerged in the late 1800s, leading to the creation of the Visiting Nursing Association, but a budding financial crisis would increase the strain on older adults. Before the Great Depression, Only an estimated 2-4% of the age 65 plus population lived in an institutional setting. After the Great Depression, millions of people were unemployed and most of the older population in America were left in dependency. In response, 
President Franklin D. Roosevelt created the Old Age Assistance and Welfare Programs and signed the Social Security Act into law on August 14, 1935. The millions of today want and have a right to the same security that their forefathers sought in this nation. The assurance that with health and the willingness to work, they will find a place for themselves in the social and economic system of the time because it has become increasingly difficult for individuals to build their own security single-handed. Government must now step in and help them lay the foundation stones, just as government in the past has helped lay the foundation of business and industry. We must face the fact that in this country we have a rich man's security and a poor man's security, and that the government owes equal obligations to both. But national security is not a half-and-half measure. It is all or none. The Social Security Act created a federal safety net for elderly, unemployed, and disadvantaged Americans. Its priority was to pay financial benefits to retirees over age 65 based on lifetime payroll tax contributions. As the aging population increased, Additional legislation, like the Housing Act of 1959, spurred the supply of affordable housing with supportive services. This new support and increasing demand led to a nursing home boom. In 1960, 9.2% of the total U.S. population was 65 years old or over. Policymakers had continued concerns about a lack of community social services for older constituents. Congress passed the Older Americans Act an Administration on Aging Agency, which approved grants to states for aging-related community planning and programs. Furthermore, on July 30, 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Medicare law as part of the Social Security Act amendments, establishing Medicare, a health insurance program for Americans over 65, and Medicaid, the health insurance program for low-income Americans. It was a generation ago that Harry Truman said, and I quote him, millions of our citizens do not now have a full measure of opportunity to achieve and to enjoy good health. Millions do not now have protection or security against the economic effects of sickness. And the time has now arrived for action to help them attain that opportunity, and to help them get that protection, unquote. Well, today, Mr. President and my fellow Americans, we're taking such action 20 years later because the need for this action is plain, and it's so clear indeed that we marvel not simply at the passage of this bill, But what we marvel at is that it took so many years to pass it. The Medicare law also further enhanced the growth of nursing homes. Unfortunately, in the haste to deliver these facilities, construction and operations went unchecked, leading to many unsafe facilities. An estimated 44% of nursing homes were found to be below fire and health standards and a rash of deadly nursing home fires across the United States from the 1950s to 80s forced legislation 
on building codes, safety, and the development of residential care and long-term care facilities to be enacted. Over time, nursing homes became more hospital-like. Some residential care facilities didn't want to go as far and did not convert to certified nursing facilities, either because they couldn't meet the regulatory standards or they didn't want to offer the health-related services. These residential care facilities came to be known by many names, boarding homes, board and care homes, adult care homes, rest homes, retirement homes, and convalescent homes, among others. The retirement home nomenclature was targeted towards wealthy seniors, selling a lifestyle choice to seniors seeking company, meals, and housekeeping. Other residential care settings were more modest in their amenities, often serving lower-income earners. The quality of care and condition between the two was uneven and became the subject of many media exposés at the time. Coincidentally, new terminology was also emerging that seemingly helped in rebranding residential care. The designation of assisted living was a uniquely defined long-term care option designed to appeal to older people seeking a more residential setting, a more familiar and comfortable lifestyle, and assistance for a wide range of needs. Now, assisted living has a storied history that extends beyond our scope today, but the critical point to note is that in November of 1994, the assisted living concept began to attract Wall Street money, giving assisted living providers access to capital and a mandate to grow. One provider went from operating six assisted living residences in one state in 1994, with fewer than 100 employees, to operating 183 assisted living residences in 18 states with more than 3,000 employees in just six years. Assisted living became the new buzzword and provider's magic key to open the doors of opportunity. It attracted the attention of investors, politicians, and media, but it quickly stumbled upon the same fate of the previous booms. By the early 2000s, stories of promises unmet began to emerge, concerns of quality, worries that individuals were being kept too long in assisted living, confusion about who assisted living was appropriate for, and anxiety from lenders and investors about overbuilding emerged. The image and concept of assisted living was tarnished. The perceived problem was that assisted living had no uniform standards, beginning with its definition and its appropriate client base. Assisted living was suffering from a crisis of confidence and a lack of direction. Some advocates for older individuals began to assert that autonomy, one of the selling points of assisted living, was not ideal and descriptive data suggested that many individuals living in assisted living were in fact frail and autonomy conflicted with safety. But empirical data was limited and some providers lost their enthusiasm for being innovative. Service-enriched senior housing or communities have evolved greatly behind the increasing demand and growing population of people over the age of 65. Rapid growth has historically led to missteps in operations, standards, and quality. As we prepare for multiple waves of large generations, starting with the boomers, it is essential that well-informed and experienced designers, builders, providers, and policymakers lead the way, reflecting on the paths 
to inform how we approach the continued growth of this typology with care and thoughtfulness. Now before we get back to the conversation, let's take a quick break to hear more about our sponsor. Have you heard of NCARB? It's the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, and they want to hear from you. Yes, you. NCARB's analysis of practice study is your opportunity to shape the future of architecture. Participate in this industry-wide survey to share your experiences and insights from working in the AEC industry. Your feedback will help guide changes to what being a licensed architect looks like and impact how architects collaborate with other professionals in the future. Again, whether you're an architect or work with architects, NCARB wants to hear from you. So make sure your voice is heard. Contribute to the analysis of practice study today. Sign up at ncarb.org slash AOP. That's N-C-A-R-B dot org slash AOP. And now let's get back to the conversation. So Ben, what um, got you into this project type? Yeah, so I started off, I've been at KTGY 18 years now, or almost 18 years, and I started off working in multifamily residential design. So I was doing affordable walk-up apartments to mixed-use podiums to wraps, but just, you know, market-rate apartments. And that's kind of all I did for a while. And then a project fell on my desk, which was a CCRC, Continuing Care Retirement Community, which has basically independent living, assisted living, memory care, and skilled nursing, which we don't really do much of, um, and I'm not an expert in, but it had that whole continuum. And I started working on it with one of the principals who since retired. And as I started working on it, I thought, man, this is like, I like residential, but there's a lot more to this and it's a lot more fun. There's an element of healthcare that you have to design into it. There's an element of hospitality that you have to design into it because all these amenities is very hospitality-like. The lobbies feel like a hotel and a lot of these things. So it started to converge all these different types of architecture, which to me, it became very exciting. But at the time, KTGY didn't do a lot of that type of work. So it was kind of like a project here, a project there, um, and then back to the multifamily. And then a few years ago, KTGY made a little bit more of a commitment to really get into this service-enriched senior housing. And I had some experience in it, and we brought some people from outside to help with it too. And we started getting more and more work, and I started focusing more and more on the service-enriched. And it's really just become a passion of mine, and it's really all I work on now is a service enriched. Like that's smart. <laughs> you know what I mean? From a, from a, from a need perspective, there's going to be so many of those projects coming up. It's great to learn all that stuff and to be that next generation that can walk it through too. Yeah. The demographics certainly look good for our industry with the, the leading edge of the baby boomers is in their mid seventies right now. So they're, they're hitting really soon. Yeah, It's expensive though. And that's the, one of the biggest issues facing the industry is, you know, in an apartment, you're paying for the apartment. In an assisted living community, you're paying for the apartment and for the services, which are very expensive. So that's the biggest problem facing the industry right now is how we hit those middle market seniors who don't have $10,000 a month to you know, spend on some high-end assisted living community. But in design can do so much, right? We can design more efficient buildings, but really we need to design buildings that are more efficient for operations because operating these of these communities is what really is where 
the big money is. So when you uh, when you do approach these these projects, what are you kind of thinking about in design process and things that come to mind? Yeah, so there's a few things. Um, a lot of times we're working for two different clients in a sense. We have the developer and we have the operator, and sometimes that's the same entity. But you know, the developer is concerned about what they're concerned about: cost, efficiency, path to entitlement, things like that. Whereas the operator is one of the end users. They're the ones who are going to come in and serve the seniors that eventually live there. So they're worried more about how efficient some of the back of house spaces are, staff spaces, how the kitchen connects to the dining venues, how the activities offices connect to the activity spaces, things like that. So really when we come to the table from day one, we're kind of trying to please two different people and two different entities with two different complementary, but sometimes different priorities. Um, so that's a challenge right off the bat is to try to just figure out how we kind of navigate between those two clients. In terms of what we what we look at, I mentioned that the operator is an end user. Well, there's a few end users. There's the yeah. operator. There's the residents, of course, is an end user. And we almost consider like the adult children of the future residents as an end user too. Typically, they're the ones making the decisions on if mom's going to move into the community or not. So we're trying to appeal to all of them. We're appealing to the resident with you know, what they're worried about. We're appealing to the adult child, which they're mostly worried about. Hey, is mom going to be thrown in some room and siloed for the rest of her life? Yeah. No, that's not the way it works. There's activity spaces. There's you know, informal and formal activity spaces, lounges, dining, theaters, things like that to get them out of the room. So we're trying to appeal to that adult child. But in the end, it needs to function efficiently for the operator. So there's a lot of different balls in the air, so to speak, <laughs> that we're trying to juggle, um, which is a little bit different from uh, where I started in multifamily. Kind of reminds me, uh, Jason Michelle, of our conversation uh, with the behavioral health and um, behavioral and mental health facility and sort of how you design for all these different groups. Um, ben, is there like certain strategies that that you have to implement, you know, keeping in mind that you're designing for these different groups, whether it's keeping certain people separated or paths of travel or, or anything like that? Yeah, there definitely is. So you hit on one of them right there. If we do a community, like a lot of our communities will just, just be assisted living memory care. Some will be independent and assisted in memory care all in one building. And when you get into that, there's two schools of thought, but I land pretty strongly in the most independent living residents don't want to see their future every day. Mm -hmm. So you want the independent living residents to be able to have their own amenities, their own circulation to and from the amenities to their units without really crossing paths with the assisted living or memory care. Memory care is its own thing. They need to be segregated in their own area. For safety purposes, first and foremost, they tend to wander. Yeah. But in terms of the design, yeah, we definitely need to keep some things separate in order to allow, remember we were talking earlier about how independent living residents, it's really a choice-based decision to move there, whereas assisted living, it's a needs-based decision. So those that are making the decision based on choice, we need to make sure that they're going to live in an environment they want to live in. And typically that's not being reminded of their future every day. Hey, Ben, have you seen thresholds where 
a project is too small to make sense? I mean, are there sort of like, hey, uh, uh, an independent living doesn't make economic sense if it's no more than 50,000 square feet or no more than, you know, 100 individual units? Are there sort of guidelines that um, are sort of true to the industry? Yeah, there are, and every market's a little different, but I think you we look at it more on a unit base as opposed to square footage. And yeah, we're doing very little that's less than 100 units if it has all three, IL, AL, and MC. Um, if we're just doing assisted living memory care, we're down as low as about 70 total units, plus or minus, but that's about as low as we get um, for the ground-up construction, which is what we work on. What type of, how does that translate then to land area? How much land area do you typically need? Um, I imagine, well, I'm assuming your parking requirements probably are not as stringent as they would be for a typical multifamily market rate project. Yeah, residents don't drive, which is great for the parking requirements. Staff drives, visitors drive, but residents not so much until we get to the IL. Yeah, there's really no hard and fast rule on land area. I mean, we've gone tall. You can certainly do infill projects and do type one and get high with these things and do them on little postage stamp size lots. But in terms of square footage of the building, there's some rules of thumb that we use in terms of like a memory care will mostly be studios. Those things are going to be four to 500 square feet each unit, but it's about 60% efficiency. So, you know, for every square foot we have of memory care unit, we have you know 0.8 square feet of common area. So it's almost a one-to-one because it's so activity intensive and so program intensive that the idea is to draw these residents outside their units to the common spaces. So I know some people listening to this, I'm sure, are familiar with multifamily and we always talk about 78 to 80% efficiency or even a little more on a good project in multifamily. On these guys, you're in the low 60s for the most part, efficiency-wise, just because of all the programming. Ben, can you elaborate just quickly for the listeners that um, maybe aren't as familiar with how those ratios work? Can you just clarify what you mean by that? So if we have a 100-unit assisted living project and we say average 600 square feet per unit, then we'd have 60,000 square feet of assisted living units, but we'd have 40,000 square feet of amenities and circulation, mostly amenities. So that 40,000 square feet would include commercial kitchen, back of house uses, commercial laundry, there'd be staff lounges, there'd be a maintenance room, there'd be administrative offices, there'd be all that kind of stuff that's, you know, back of house for the staff only. But then forward facing, we'd have dining venues, we'd have activity spaces, we'd have lounges, we'd have sometimes a like hair salon, we'd have wellness areas, physical therapy, fitness, we would have probably a small theater there'd be all that kind of stuff included in the 40,000. So it's really like when you when a developer puts together their performance says, oh, we got 100,000 square feet, we're going to build. Yeah, that's great, but only 60,000 is going to be rentable square footage. The rest is going to be back of house needed to make the community function, or it'll be front of house amenity area. So that, that ratio is 60-40 on independent living? Is that what you said is the average? Or what's the average on independent living? Independent living is usually more low 70s. The 60% is assisted living memory care, 60 to mid 60s. And then when you merge them all together, usually high 60s if you have all three uses. Got it. So basically independent living, 
you have arguably less amenity, common space, more rentable private space. And then as you as you get more into services, obviously you get more amenity, common back of house uh, and less living. Although, exactly. although I imagine from a from a revenue standpoint, if you have assisted living, right, or memory care, I imagine your monthly, you know, as a resident, your monthly payment is probably substantially higher than it would be as an independent living place. Is that correct? Absolutely, because we talked about the services being the most expensive part, not the actual unit they live in. So yeah, when the services increase, the rent increases. And a lot of operators have kind of a an a la carte or a menu that you can choose from services. I know some of them have like a level one, two, three, four, five, where level one, you need help with one activity of daily living. Level two, you need two. Level three, you need so on and so forth. And as you need more help, the price goes up. Is that uh, that math sort of the complexity of working through this project or is it something else with dealing with this project type? From a design standpoint, I think the complexity is trying to to marry the residential with the hospitality, with the institutional uses and make all three of those uses be contained within the building in a way where the building functions well and it still feels like home to the resident. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, a hotel doesn't feel like home because it's just, uh, you know, a lobby and a few little dining venues downstairs and then long corridors to get to rooms. And if we're not careful, that's kind of what an assisted living building may feel like. So we need to take some cues from the multifamily industry in terms of how we can make these things feel more like home to the residents. And I think the first thing is getting rid of the long corridors. I know the multifamily industry isn't great at doing that because, <laughs> you know, it's it's efficient and we all love our efficiency. But having little pocket common spaces or little pocket living rooms um, as you go out towards the units rather than just having them all centralized in one location really helps. But in assisted living building, there's going to be staff going up and down the hallways with medicine carts. There's going to be like medical charting rooms. There's going to be medicine cabinets throughout and being able to hide some of those uses that you really need on a day-to-day basis to serve the residents because you don't want you don't want medical carts sitting in the middle of the hallway when you're walking to your front door yeah um so whatever that looks like little closets throughout it's important because this is this is probably the last home that most of these people are going to have and we want it to feel like home to them is the end product particularly in the independent living um, although maybe some, somewhat in the assisted living too, is there sort of this camaraderie where people may be leaving their, you know, leave their front doors open like you would in a dorm hall and, and you're socializing with your neighbor across the street and you're hanging out in the hallways? I mean, is it like that or are people pretty sort of keep to themselves? Do you have any sense on that? That's the goal. Um, we want to get people out of their rooms to socialize because isolation among seniors is really the number one cause of death, as morbid as that sounds. Like when people get isolated and they don't have family or friends, their health tends to deteriorate really quickly. So that's the goal is to get people out of their units. And that's the goal of designing some of these awesome common spaces that we try to design is to draw people out. Um, in terms of the college dorm reference, that's that's a really good comparison. And we joke about that sometimes too. It's like, you know, you start here and you end here. In the middle, it's a little different. 
obviously there's some medical type of uses associated with assisted living that aren't in the dorm rooms, but in terms of smaller units and socialization and come to the common areas and hang out in the lounge, um, it's very much like college. In terms of independent living, it's much more, I guess, apartment building. And I would think of an independent living community as simple as you can do it. It would be a multifamily apartment building with restaurants. That's about as simple as you can boil it down. So it's one and two bedroom units. There's common open spaces. There's private open spaces in the form of decks. It's going to look a lot like an apartment building. In terms of the unit mix, are in independent living, are they all one bedrooms or are there two bedrooms? And then what are kind of the rules and regulations on guests coming over or hosting a party or having your extended, you know, if you have grown children, having your family come over for a dinner party? I mean, are there rules on that? The rules would be based on operator's preference. Most of them don't have any rules, like treat it like your own home, have people over, have a dinner party, do all that. You're you're trying to live your life, right? I mean, these people are seniors are getting older, but they still want to hang out with their friends. They still want to have family over. Um, the unit size is usually we do about 50% ones and 50% twos, maybe a couple studios and threes sprinkled in there. But a lot of these people are downsizing from homes they've had for 50 years and they're four bedroom homes and they have a ton of furniture and they have a ton of little knickknacks and keepsakes. And we want to do our best to accommodate that with some spacious one bedrooms. Like, I mean, we're usually over 700 feet on the one bedrooms, over a thousand on the two bedrooms, which is a little bit bigger than a typical multifamily. The two bedrooms, it tends to take on two purposes. Number one, if the grandkids are coming over for a stay, they can sleep in the second bedroom. But really, um, we call it the snore room sometimes. Like when the husband snores too loud and gets kicked out, he gets booted to the second bedroom. Jason's room. Yeah, that's where he snores. So, Jason, you're Dude, only I 40. Got, I, almost, I almost got kicked out last night, man, just because I flip around so much. So I'm, I'm feeling that. I understand it 100%. You need an extra bedroom then. <laughs> uh, we have it, and that's where she sent me. So <laughs> There you go. Yeah, I think at one point, we haven't done this in a while, but we actually labeled a second bedroom or like a den or an office or something, a snore room, just because we're like, that's what it's going to be used for. Uh, well, what's great about that is it brings some levity to the situation, right? You're kind of like, oh, wow, we're moving. And maybe some people are sort of down about uh, moving on from their big house where they raise their family. And this is kind of like the final stop. So you call it the snore room, bring some levity to the situation. Yeah, a little bit. You mentioned again, people moving from their longtime home, which is true and independent living, choice-based decision. But storage is so important in these things because people don't want to give up, you know, whatever that keepsake is. And they don't want to put it in some offsite storage facility that is super hard to get to. And, you know, they want they want their stuff right there. And trying to provide private storage for every unit is important. Talk about that a little bit more. That's a really good point. Um, I'm using my parents as a frame of reference here and just the purging that it took to get them to where they're at. And they're now in a two bedroom, one bath, basically an independent living situation. And But yeah, so the storage, how, how does that work in these types of communities? Or do they just get like your typical storage closet on the balcony or is it more robust than that? And then I also want you to circle back to parking, um, especially in the independent living. Is it like one space guaranteed per unit or is it less than that? Yeah, you talk about your parents. It makes me it makes me think about my parents who still live in their single family home that I was raised in. And they have this yard 
in the yard has accumulated over the years two of those like Home Depot, like 10 by 10 storage sheds <laughs> just for all their junk. So they have their house, but then they have all, they used to have a storage facility with like all my grandma's stuff and they purge through that and they decide to bring it all on site. So they have sheds in their backyard that are, you know, 10 by 10 by eight tall, two of them with a bunch of stuff in it. And I'm like, oh man, if they ever have to move, they're going to listen to this at some point and think I'm making fun of them, but I'm not. <laughs> Love you guys. Can't wait to go through that with you at some point. Um, <laughs> I heard shove you off. What'd you guys hear? <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, maybe I'm not looking forward to going through it with them, but there's going to be some cool gems that we're going to find when we do. So, um, and it's all labeled pretty well, so it's not going to be too bad. Anyway, storage. Yeah, we're not doing like the two foot by three foot storage closet on the balcony. We're doing storage off the corridor, interior storage, typically much bigger, like a four by four, which isn't huge, but it's three times as big as that two by three that you get on the balcony. So they have to purge. They can't take everything from their single family home. That's for sure. They have to figure out what's important, but we're giving them opportunities to store a little bit more than they typically would. And we mentioned that offsite, you know, storage facility, a lot of people are still going to have that, but that's the stuff they never need, right? They just want to keep it because they can't throw it away. There's enough. We try to design enough storage for independent living so they can have what they're going to need at some point on site. A lot of times it's not immediately adjacent to the unit. There's like big storage rooms on each floor, on each wing of the building um, or in the parking garage. But we try to provide more than a typical multifamily project. I wonder if that's going to change, you know, with the evolution of the generations, right? Because as I think about, like when you mentioned your parents, they've got these storage sheds with all this stuff. Like my wife, when I look at what we're doing now, and, and Michelle, you know, the, you know, with the kid, it's with the, uh, the kids, it's like you don't have these huge photo albums anymore. Like everything's digital, or you make these like books, or you know what I mean, which you can easily go download and make another one, and, and that kind of stuff. like we don't seem to accumulate. And maybe we're not old enough yet, but my kid, you know, my oldest, eldest is thirteen. And it's like, we don't seem to have all the stuff. Now, it may not be that personality either, but I wonder if some of that's because of technology. You don't have CDs and DVDs and, you know, all this kind of stuff anymore. I wonder if it's over time shrinking just because, I don't want to call it data, but the data is shrinking, if that makes sense. Shift to a digital footprint rather than physical. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if there's going to be, I wonder if that will, you know, create that change. Well, our generation also is just not, we're not collectors, right? I think we could probably all say that our parents were collectors. They collected spoons or uh, shot glasses or um, uh, precious moments. Is that what they're called? Precious memories? You know, those little figurines, right? Like Precious I, moments. Don't act like you don't know. Yeah. Like our generation isn't into that. Our generation is like lock and go, you know? So anyways, off topic, but no, that's really interesting, and I haven't thought deeply about that. So, um, see, I'm learning from you guys in terms of this, but I think the need for storage is always going to be there because there's going to be something. Yeah, and Michelle, you mentioned parking to go back to one of your previous questions and parking specifically in independent living. We typically want to provide one per unit plus whatever staff is going to be there. So it ends up about 1.1 per unit. A lot of our operators have told us that People move in, couples move into the community with multiple cars, and then they get rid of one pretty quickly because they realize, hey, 90% of what I need is here on site. The odds of us driving in two different directions at the same time is very low. We really only need one car. We don't need to pay the payment and pay to store that car that we're never going to drive. So 
sometimes, depending on where you are in the life of a community, it can feel pretty tight on the parking when you do that. But once it stabilizes, one per unit tends to be plenty. Ben, can you talk a little bit about, um, are there any special requirements for like finishes, whether it's in the room or throughout the facility, non-slip surfaces and things like that? Yeah, there's a lot of good design that we can incorporate into these things. And you think about most of the residents are going to have, if not a wheelchair, a walker or a cane. And you're talking about non-slip surfaces. You're talking about like zero thresholds. Corridors tend to have lean rails. We don't call them handrails because then there's all kinds of code requirements with that. But you <laughs> see like the wood millwork along at handrail height along the hallway. And it's just so if someone's walking, you know, with a cane and they decide they want to they take a quick break and there's no chair there, they can just lean against that for a hmm. minute or two and then keep going. So there's a few of those little details like that, we need to make sure all the corridors are wide enough to where two wheelchairs can pass, which six feet is plenty for that, which is a typical corridor. But I know sometimes when you're fighting for inches and square footage, it can be tempting to squeeze those corridors down. But in this case, you don't want to do that. So yeah, just a lot of like kind of common sense, good design type issues. I mean, having a good progression from a drop off at the front door to get into the building past reception and to an elevator. Like how do all those thresholds work? The interior designer usually wants to do a few different flooring types. How does that transition? Is there going to be any, you know, rough spots or trip hazards? And it's, it's easy to deal with, but it's something that we have to think about. I think you're right on the design part too. And Demetrius, I know you're talking about the finishes because you're dealing with commercial application, but not wanting it to feel commercial right in a lot of situations so if you're trying to you get that hotel that hotel vibe we all understand you're walking through and it's like yeah this hotel carpet hotel finishes but if you got to blend that with residential you need the durability but still make it feel like you're not you know completely commercialized right so and there's a lot of great products for that these days i mean it's come a long long way yeah absolutely and there's a lot of good interior designers that we work with including ktgy interior design now um <laughs> that have a really good handle on all those finishes much better than I do. Ben, in your time working on this, have you seen this type evolve or or maybe just from stories that you've heard? Well, the last two years have been crazy in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, I think a lot of evolution has happened just recently. And when COVID first hit, we didn't know what to expect. We knew that there was some crazy stuff going on in senior housing in New York um, we didn't know exactly why. We didn't know how to keep the residents safer. But as we've learned, and we didn't know how long it was going to last too, right? Remember 15 days to slow the curve or whatever it was yeah. or to stop the spread? Yeah. Well, we're going on 700 and something days and we're still <laughs> yeah. you know, living in this pandemic world. So I think when it first hit, we were kind of like, okay, is this really going to change the way we design senior housing? Then we started hearing the stories from New York and we're like, well, something's got to happen because this is not good for these residents. And there was mostly nursing homes, which is a little different than what we're talking about today, but a close cousin. But I think the bottom line is even if we get over coronavirus, which I tend to be an optimist, so I'm thinking like at some point we're <laughs> going to, and it's going to be like the, like the seasonal flu, but I've been wrong before. But even if we get beyond it, there's going to be other pathogens and other viruses that are going to come down the road. So it makes sense to design in such a way where we can 
you know, put our residents' well-being at the forefront when something like that happens, especially being the most vulnerable population um, for coronavirus, for sure, and probably for future pathogens again. So as we started looking at this, we thought, okay, so distancing makes sense, but social isolation is a huge factor in making people's health go downhill. So there was something starting to gain traction before COVID hit called the small house or greenhouse concept, which is basically rather than having a you know hundred unit assisted living building that all feeds onto one amenity area, you create little neighborhoods that have their own kind of living space within them. So rather than have the units open off a corridor, you'd have the units open off a 20 foot wide corridor, a glorified space, which happens to be their living room. And maybe there's 10 or 12 units that open into this little living room. And then, you know, there's a little hallway and there's 10 or 12 more units that open onto the exact same living room, right? You can repeat the same thing. So you start to have your little family pod. And if for some reason someone got sick in another pod, it's not going to affect yours. You're still good to go. You can still come out. You can still socialize. You can still be with your quote unquote family. So that was starting to gain a little traction. I think it's gained more traction the last two years. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's some challenges with that. Um, we talked about the cost of care. Mm-hmm. And now you're starting to decentralize some of your amenities, which means the operations aren't quite as efficient, which means it's a little more expensive. It's definitely more of a, a high barrier to entry market type solution. Mm-hmm. But in terms of resident well-being, doing something like that is really, in my mind, at the top. It kind of gives you gives you your crew to hang out with, you know, your crew of 10 or 12. Yeah. Let's say in this existing system without having that sort of pod structure, is it about improving the, um, the HVAC system and maybe certain materials? At one point I heard brass was good for a uh, nonstick of virus and, and things like that. Is it, is it kind of that direction within the existing um, facilities? Yeah, there's a lot of that going on now. A lot of that talk about the antimicrobial materials and I've heard brass and acrylic fabrics on the chairs and all that kind of stuff. I think that's here to stay. Um, Enhanced HVAC systems with faster air turnover. The HEPA filter. Yeah, better filters and yeah, more more turnover of the air so it gets in and out quicker. I think that's all here to stay. Didn't all of our parents, grandparents have the acrylic... uh the plastic uh, couch covers. So is that what we're talking about? Or <laughs> it's it's not it's not quite as plasticky as what you're thinking about in the 70s. Um, but yeah, it's I mean that's it's easy to clean, right? But I think those types of things they're here to stay in senior housing. We definitely need to be cognizant of any future virus and how that's you know COVID 19. They so typically it's airborne, right? It typically doesn't live on materials, but we don't know the next one. Yeah. The next one might be transmitted based on materials. So, And there's other things, Demetrius, in the design that we've thought about. Like we want family to be able to come to visit, but we don't want everyone walking through the community just willy-nilly. So, you know, having specific visitation areas that have a door directly to the outside or even outdoor visitation areas, uh, things like that that change the design a little bit, but not much. Yeah. Um, and we've talked a lot about flexibility of common spaces and multi-use common spaces. So, you know, like a dining venue that might be, you know, at dinner time, that's exactly what it is, dining, but it's an activities area during the day and a 
you know, coffee in the morning and maybe at night it becomes a bar or something like that. So I think that's not COVID specific, but in terms of trends, we're certainly allowing spaces to be used throughout the day rather than just at one time. Ben, who gets to dictate what type of amenity is being programmed within the independent living? In terms of the programming, every operator has kind of their bare bones minimum, what they want. Most of them are willing to kind of push and pull a little bit. We can talk a little bit about theming. I think everyone's trying to evolve more than change. So we can maybe push them one step. And we have one client who is a good client of ours, but they've done senior housing for a long time. They know what they're doing. They know exactly what spaces they want. They know about how big each space needs to be. The relationship of spaces is up for debate a little bit. And we kind of talk internally, like it's our job as architects to try to push our client in what we think is the right direction. And if we can push them, you know, 5% each project, like, hey, if you consider this space or why don't we theme this space this way and something sticks and then the next project 5% more and the next project 5% more, we can slowly help our client evolve. And most of our clients who know what they're doing, that's what it is because they have this idea in their head of this is what the project should be and it's not going to deviate much. So it's just those little incremental changes. And there's some people that are a little bit newer to the game or their roots are in multifamily or their roots are in healthcare or something like that. And they see the market and they're like, hey, let's give this a go. And they're really looking to us for our expertise in terms of, wait, what do we program? How big does the kitchen need to be? How many seats do we need in this dining venue based on the number of units? Whereas the more experienced people have all that set. So I think it's a mix depending on the client. And there's positives and negatives to working on each. You guys think I'm going to say that I love working with the the person who doesn't know what they're doing quite as much and I get more creative freedom, but sometimes there's comfort in having a client that knows exactly what they want and exactly how it's going to function and trying to design the best space for them too. So both are fun and both have their own challenges. Ben, to the point on trends and and this project evolving, uh, you had mentioned earlier about uh, infill properties. Can you talk a little bit about, I understand like developers are starting to shift uh, their thinking on rather doing these long, these expansive developments in the suburbs, kind of going towards the infill community. Can you talk a little bit about that thinking and maybe if you have a, a project example on something like that? Yeah. So in terms of infill projects, those are more fun for me. There's just a lot more to deal with, um, which makes it exciting. But the thinking is a few things. Number one, we want residents to get as many visitors as possible. It helps keep some, you know, it keeps our quality of life up if their adult children are visiting them. And if you're way out in the suburbs somewhere, you have that project out in the desert, people aren't going to go there. But if you're in Phil, if you're close to where those adult children live, you're close to where they work. It's easy to stop by on a Saturday. It's easy to stop by on the way home from work. Um, there's some value to being close to where the action is from that standpoint. The other value to being close to where the action is, is the resident can actually take advantage of it. More independent living, but assisted living too with caretakers or with their visiting children can go out. They can go to a restaurant down the block, things like that, which actually allows, if there's more amenities outside the four walls of your community, 
it allows a little bit more freedom to downsize some of the amenities a bit in some of these infill projects, which obviously makes your rentable square footage to non-rentable square footage ratio a little bit higher, which can bring the cost of construction down a little bit. It's a little bit less common space to operate. So it's a way to bring the cost down slightly. Of course, the land cost is going to be more, so it offsets that when you're <laughs> in an infill area. And we we talk a lot about like what's the perfect site for senior housing. Um, and we really view it in a lot of ways as a transitional use between a more commercial corridor and a more residential corridor because it has aspects of each, right? So if we can find something that's between a shopping center and a residential, mm. it's really a perfect spot. Um, and we're working on one right now, which knock on wood is going to be fully approved two weeks from now um, in Mountain View, which is Bay Area, California, South Bay. It's where Google's headquartered. So it's a pretty, pretty nice area, pretty nice market, but there's a shopping center just to the north of us with a CVS, with quick serve restaurants just to the south and just to the west of us. There's single family residential and the site's a little bit over an acre. Um, and we have 90 assisted living and memory care and four stories. So it's a tight subterranean parking. So it's a tight little site, but it's really, it's the perfect spot. It's the perfect spot for senior housing. The only thing it's missing is like a full-on mall and a hospital close by. Ben, for someone that is getting into this project type and kind of taking it on for the first time maybe, or they're kind of early in their career in this project type, what's one thing that you would, or a couple things that you would advise them to consider about this project type things to think about or, or whatever advice you would want to share about this? Um, give me a call if you're, (laughs) (laughs) dude, that was, that was perfect. Well, good job then. Um, (laughs) you know, in every joke, there's a little bit of truth, I guess. Uh, (laughs) it's, it's tough because if you don't know what you're doing in this, you can go down the wrong path really, really fast. You could design a building that works great for the residents, but an operator would look at it and say, what are you doing, guys? We can't operate this building. Or vice versa, you could design something that, or if your background's in healthcare, you could design something that works great from all the physical therapy and some of the medicine and medical charting spaces work perfectly. But then it feels like you know an institutional use and not a residential use. So trying to merge the residential with the hospitality with the healthcare slash institutional aspect becomes pretty difficult. Um, and you need to, you need to know what you're doing. So I think if you're just getting into it, my advice, I joke and I said, call me, <laughs> but I think my advice would be like, find someone that knows what they're doing and find something that there's someone that has been doing it a little while and shadow them a little bit and learn from them because it's not something that you can, I mean, you can, read books, you can do your research, but until you are shoulder to shoulder with someone that knows what they're doing on a project like this, I think that's really the only way to learn. And you can learn from another designer, another architect, operators can certainly help you too with that. But there's a lot to learn in this pretty unique niche of housing. Thank you so much, Ben. A super informative conversation. What's the best way that people can kind of follow along uh, with you or KTGY? Yeah, so our website, ktgy.com, you can click on that and just see some of the 
projects that we're up to, including senior, but all the you know student housing, multifamily, and stuff. Or you can email me if you have any specific questions. B Seeger at ktgy.com. B S E A G E R at ktgy.com, and I'd be happy to follow up with any information for any of the listeners. Great. Thank you so much, Ben. Uh, Thank you, Jason Michelle. Thank you to the listeners for listening. We'll talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you to NCARB for their support of this podcast episode. Visit ncarb.org slash AOP and contribute to the Analysis of Practice survey today. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart now. 
and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.